0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you all very much for tuning in. This is the weekly podcast and boy, have we got a lot to cram in in our time together. Our report back from the live event with a sensational, predictable, uh, predictable, Uh, unreliable prediction. Uh, Kind of made, you could feel the hall. Uh, exclaim with surprise when the result came in. More of that in a moment. Uh, then if it's okay with all of you, I'll reflect on two things as briefly as possible because we have got some fantastic questions to cover which which is in itself a guide through the turbulence of British politics at the moment. Um, the two things I, I <coughs> excuse me, I'm getting excited. Uh, the two themes I'd like to cover are the reshuffle and what it tells us, because I think it tells us something important, significant, uh, uh, and I'll reflect on that. And then a little bit on Andrew Neil and GB News. I'm surprised by the number of questions I get about Andrew Neil, GB News, and so i reflect on that a bit. Then your fantastic uh, questions and there have been lots, and I'm going to, for those of you who have emailed questions recently, my plan is to get through all of them. Uh, so if I don't for some reason, please email me again, and I'll do it next week. Uh, because they're also good, and they are so wide-ranging. You know, we go from the past and what the past tells us about the present with references to people like Herbert Morrison, Uh, we go fast forward to possible Labour leaders now and all kinds of things. So those questions, the impact of opinion polls, all kinds of things. So they're coming up and say they're a brilliant and original guide to the state of British politics in themselves. I might as well just go and lie in a darkened room and you can kind of take over completely. Um, So uh, that's all to come. Now, before all of that, Uh, For those of you who were there live at King's Place uh, on Monday, if you're listening to this on a Monday, I obviously mean the last Monday, um, and for those of you who watched on the live stream will know that I asked uh, the audience live in the hall and the streamed audience from around the world to predict whether Rishi Sunak would be the next conservative prime minister and the result was really interesting in the hall by about a margin of three to one the hall predicted and remember our predictions are not what people want to happen but what they assess is going to happen by about a margin of three to one in the hall they predicted that Rishi Sunak would not be the next conservative prime minister And those watching around the world on the stream predicted by about a margin of four to one that Sunak would not be the next prime minister. Now, given our record on predictions, that's probably quite good news for Rishi Sunak. No, no, actually, the predictions are becoming much more reliable. So this is interesting. And there were all kinds of prophetic interventions in that hall uh, on Monday night. So we had a guy saying, watch out for the Conservative MP, this is in the context of leadership, Lee Rowley. And I said, just remind me who Lee Rowley is. And he gave a great profile of Lee Rowley. Anyway, later on in the week, Lee Rowley was made a minister in the reshuffle. So you see, you've got to attend these events and you get the politics first. And then somebody else said, don't rule out Liz Truss and put a case for Liz Truss. And within hours, she was made foreign secretary in that reshuffle. So, yeah, you've gotta you got to come along next time. Uh, we had a lot of fun. It's the next one, by the way, is Monday, October the 11th. And you can book your tickets now on the King's Place website. It's worth doing because then it's in the diary and we can have a lot of uh, fun and make sense of all kinds of things and be prophetic. It would just be after the Tory conference. We'll have had the Labour conference. Big, big moment for Keir Starmer. And he's certainly presenting it as a big, big moment. So that is uh, on Monday, October the 11th Uh, do come along if you can because you know there's obviously more exchange within the hall but there's plenty of exchange on the stream as well if you live in Australia and can't quite make the round trip or you're not allowed out because of the virus and that kind of thing Uh, only excuse for not coming from Australia of course anyway the reshuffle There have been, in my view, only, I can think of only two reshuffles which changed the direction of a government and the fate of a prime minister uh, in modern times. Uh, The one in September 1981, carried out by Margaret Thatcher, where she sacked or demoted most of the so-called wets those arguing for an economic policy uh, far removed from her at her most monetarist and purist, puritanical monetarist. Um, She sent Jim Pryor to Northern Ireland, which was a sort of real punishment in that era, more than it is now, although, God, look at what happens in Northern Ireland. It's quite a challenge now. She sacked some of them, and she brought in the likes of Norman Tebbett. It was an assertion of strength for her and a clear indication of the ideological direction in which she was determined to move. Uh, the likes of Tebbitt were not just sort of mates of hers. She didn't really have mates as such. They were ideological allies. And it signalled a self-confidence, and by the way, t- 1981, well before the Falklands War, Thatcher could read the political stage smartly, almost by instinct. And she knew that um, in making her move in the way that she did then, she could get away with it because the Labour Party was formally split. The SDP had been formed. She recognised that in facing a split opposition, the next election was in the bag, even though at that point she was miles behind in the polls. And That was the moment she indicated at the highest level on her front bench where she wanted to go. She had been quite a cautious reshuffler, much more cautious than Johnson. Uh, She used to feel compelled or obliged to appoint at senior levels people who she was ideologically opposed to. Or certainly was moving in an ideologically different direction to them. And by the way, continue to appoint at senior levels uh, big figures who didn't wholly share her ideological approach. Not in the Treasury. Geoffrey Howe and Nigel Lawson were fellow travellers until the bitter end, of course, where they were two figures in her fall. Uh, but elsewhere, she quite often had pro-Europeans: Douglas Hurd, Ken Clark. She liked them, got on, admired them. And on many levels, certainly Clark was at one with her, but not on Europe. But she didn't mind; she was okay with it. Unlike Johnson, who only likes people around who are loyal to him and won't challenge him. So that was a significant uh, reshuffle, which indicated a self-confidence and an ideological purpose. The other one was a reshuffle carried out by Gordon Brown in um, 2000, it must have been 2008, maybe even 2009, where, if you remember, Brown was subjected to endless attempted coups by uh, various sort of so-called Blairite MPs. Um, and uh, was constantly undermined by these challenges. Uh, There are, you know, it's not just the Corbynistas who can be, in inverted commas, militant. The Blairite wing can be as well, and were then. And then Gordon Brown did a reshuffle where, sensationally, he brought back Peter Mandelson, a figure who he had fallen out with Unfairly, actually, Mandelson didn't betray him in the way Gordon Brown was absolutely convinced he did. Uh, And Mandelson came back in. And that was a key moment in Brown's premiership because with Mandelson as his chief ally, um, it made it much more difficult for Labour MPs to move against Brown. And I think that reshuffle made a big difference to the relatively short premiership of Brown. The others really, you know, are interesting in terms of personnel and the impact they might have had on a department, but they really aren't that significant. This one is illuminating for one reason and one reason alone. It shows to me that for now, at least, and that qualification is important, Uh, Boris Johnson is the most powerful prime minister of modern times. If you look back at others who've had to, other prime ministers, not us lot, we we haven't got that power sadly, but if you look back at other prime ministers who have reshuffled their cabinet, they have all, for different reasons, been constrained. Uh, Even Thatcher, a lot of the time, though not perhaps in 1981 and uh, you know Harold Wilson had to balance his cabinet he spent ages making sure the left were represented the right were represented and so on the pro-Europeans the anti-Europeans you know Thatcher at times almost I've already said it chose to have quite big figures who would challenge her it's a bit of a myth that she liked to To be challenged, Uh, no prime minister does, but she could cope with it, and and did. Uh, Then, uh, if you look, who for Major, of course, you know, had to balance his cabinet with pro Europeans, anti Europeans, um, people who wanted him out and people who were going to support him. Remember, he had the bastards in the cabinet. That was a reference he made when he thought the microphone was off to a ITM political editor, but felt compelled to have some bastards with those who supported him. Uh, Cameron, uh, Blair, yeah, Blair was next. Blair's reshuffles were like a renego- uh, kind of negotiation with Gordon Brown. Uh, each one was uh, fraught with tension. Uh, with Brown trying to make sure his people got promoted or into the government and Blair wanting to do the same with his people. It was a negotiation. Uh, Blair was not a solo operator, wholly free to do what he wanted. Uh, and David Cameron couldn't reshuffle his government at all because of the coalition and the complexity of a wide-ranging reshuffle Uh, and the negotiations with the Liberal Democrats. There was no wide-ranging reshuffle during the coalition. Theresa May had to balance Brexiteers and Remainers and so on. Johnson did what he wanted to do. Uh, That's the significance of this reshuffle. Um, He wanted Nadine Doris as Culture Secretary. She became Culture Secretary. He didn't have to worry about what, I don't know, Rishi Sunak might have thought about this or anyone else, such is his omnipotence over this government and this parliamentary party for now. He did what he wanted and in doing so was almost unique amongst modern prime ministers. But his omnipotence also shows why this reshuffle isn't particularly significant, won't change the direction of the government, because it is Johnson who takes all the key decisions. Uh, Sometimes he speaks to Sunak, sometimes he might speak to Javid uh, when it's a health-related issue. The cabinet talk about it for about five minutes, and that's it. So, while Johnson is in this position of great strength, the rest of the cabinet, frankly, are Uh, of not a great deal of significance. Those who clearly have some sway, but I think still limited, Sunak, he remains in place. There's the vital ongoing Brexit saga, that's old frosty, unelected, still in place. So in terms of the direction of government, it signifies nothing, because Johnson makes the calls and they all nod subserviently uh, but in highlighting that very omnipotence it's it's a powerful uh sequence there he was sitting there it was all done quite smoothly those who were sacked accepted their sackings and so on this guru um, uh, you know Rob kicked up a fuss and was given a title but given johnson's omnipotence being deputy prime minister is powerless because johnson takes all the decisions Now, this could all change, and one factor would bring about change. If Labour moved into a sustained lead in the opinion polls, there would be a panic amongst uh, backbenchers. And some of those who were sacked might feel uh, they can raise their head. Some in the cabinet might dare to speak and challenge. But at the moment, Johnson is mighty, mightier than any prime minister in modern times whether you like it or not you know I'm not saying it's a good thing I'm just kind of making an analysis and uh, I think that's what the reshuffle showed we'll find out whether Labour can even begin to articulate a route that gets them into a lead with the Labour conference and obviously we'll all get together after that and analyse that one then the Tory conference we're in the conference season aren't we Anyway, before we go to your questions, yeah, GBTV and Andrew Neil's departure from D- GBTV. Andrew Neal is really interesting on lots of uh, levels. Uh, he is someone of obvious kind of depth and intelligence. You know, he knows everything, often much more than the people he interviews. He's across the politics of the Middle East, Europe and the economic situation in all global terrains Um, and at times of course has soared and shaped uh, the media landscape his Sunday Times in the 1980s got the zeitgeist uh, brilliantly it was sort of Thatcherite but not holy Uh, and He's done so many different things. You know, he set up Sky, he's edited other newspapers. Uh, so he's a big player, but at times he kind of misreads even the media. I mean, I think he can misread politics too. But, uh, and incidentally, would only have the space in a kind of media climate that there is in the UK, where uh, being, you know, associated with or identified with the centre right is a good way of getting prominence at the BBC and beyond but he also I think kind of shows these lapses in judgment and I'm amazed that he ever thought even if it had been slickly launched that there would be a significant audience for uh, GBTV with its kind of assertiveness and muscularity he kept on saying which I thought was ominous It would be like talk radio. Well, the people who listen to talk radio, you know, taxi drivers, you know, they're out and about and people in their cars. They don't sit and switch on the radio to listen to Julia Hartley Brewer tell them what a triumph Brexit is and, you know, forget about lockdowns, you know, we should all be able to do what we want. They're out and about being told that that's the way they should live their lives. And the idea that even people who shared those views, would sit down on a sunny afternoon at sort of, oh, it's two o'clock in the afternoon, let's watch this rolling news coverage where a presenter will tell us what we think. And contrary to mythology, they are already quite well served by other media outlets. It's not as if there's a sort of progressive mindset in the British media that dominates in an overwhelming way. Um, you know, you've got The Mail, The Sun, a uh, cowed BBC terrified of... Uh, well, the editors are terrified of their director general and new chairman. The director general is terrified of number 10. The chairman was a donor of the Conservative Party. I mean, you're not dealing here, contrary to mythology, with some kind of Marxist liberal organisation. So viewers are already well served, but it's this thing this kind of sense that people would sit down and watch during the day. Um, I'm not surprised that Farage is doing quite well. He is, by the way, I think, a brilliant broadcaster and a good interviewer. Um, I've I've watched his program, and what he does is he treats into. – he's got a curiosity, Farage. Um, It's not just about him as it is with a lot of interviewers. And um, he's a good interviewer, I think. And I'm not surprised that section's doing well. But that's kind of 8 o'clock in the evening or something. Maybe you'd sit down and watch a bit of that or watch a recording of it on YouTube. Um, But the rest of it, I think, was doomed anyway because it's just a misunderstanding of of viewing habits, I think. Um, But anyway... Uh, you know it, the the Andrew Neil sort of saga. The the relationship with the BBC is so interesting. The BBC at his peak, and he's he's a very good interviewer. But there are others who are good as well. Um, but I think at his peak, he was presenting five shows a week and allowed to be the publisher. I think the technical term is of the Spectator or chair of the Spectator, um, and. You know, I can tell you this, the chair or the equivalent of the new statesman would not be given one show. Uh, and, and, and Andrew was dominant in the New Labour era as well as subsequently. So, you know, it kind of tells us quite a lot about the media in the same way that Boris Johnson's reshuffle tells us quite a lot about where he stands at the moment and his power. Okay. Well, those are some some thoughts. Let me know what you think. I know you will by emailing. Now, for those of you listening for the first time, uh, let me give you that email because I kind of sometimes forget the address, believe it or not, even though I must have read it out about 10,000 times. It's steverick14 at iCloud.com. That's steve R I C 14 at iCloud.com. And for those of you who uh, haven't got time to take a note of that because you're ironing, rowing, running, walking along a river, looking out onto the Australian seas, um, that address was given out kind of about 23 minutes into this podcast. So we're 23 minutes in, which means we have got loads of questions to cram in. So let's go right, well, let's go to France, first of all, and Dominica Jewell. We all know, of course, that Brexit is the main driver in relation to the lack of supplies in the UK. And by the way, the collapse of exports to Europe uh, from within Britain and Things like the British food and drinks uh, sector, the farming sector, in underreported despair. My questions are at what point, this is uh, Dominique Ajoule, at what point do you think the British public will find the situation intolerable? And what, if any, will be the consequences for the current government? Um, yeah, well, that is partly uh, up to uh, Labour. Uh, if they turn it into a big theme and make it, to quote the sort of new early New Labour area, make the dividing line a bad Brexit versus a good Brexit, it will become more prominent. And given that Boris Johnson has said he plans to make Brexit an election issue at the next election, it seems to be a very sensible thing for the Labour leadership to do. If they don't, It's going to be one of these weird, buried stories you can all see. I mean, God, I was down in uh, St. Ives in Cornwall recently. Uh, Two of the quite posh, always-packed restaurants have closed down permanently, it seems. Uh, Every window of every cafe and restaurant pleading for staff. Uh, These Europeans have gone, and they can't cope. And someone, a local in Saint Ives, a veteran local, told me uh, he saw a situation where you know it's going to just be a place where there's a couple of fish and chip shops for takeaways because they just cannot find the staff. He will say, "Oh, that's a rather grand example. Only affects those who can afford to go to restaurants, maybe, but it's a, it's one symptom of many." Uh, but I think it would just go underreported. We've talked about the BBC; they're too scared at the moment to deal with any of this. Um, so it's up to the opposition, and they could. Uh, they've got to be clever about it, but they could. Now, talking of Brexit, an email from James Dowley, a, a, in brackets, Brexit supporter. Um, there are many who listen to this podcast because, you know, we can engage and have a good conversation, like as I say, Farage does with his. It's mainly people who admire him on his guest list but not always not always anyway james dowdy says just finished reading your book are uh, the prime ministers we never had as i lie in bed with covid got a signed copy from waterstones that's great uh james thank you uh excellent read uh, he says the chapter on miliband's particularly enlightening oh thank you uh very much i hope you get better more importantly hope you're not still suffering with covid I found the chapter on Portillo very interesting, but feel you may have overstated his failure in the two thousand and one leadership contest when you stated he came last in the final round. He did indeed, but only by one vote. And if just one MP had switched from Ian Duncan Smith to Portillo, he would have beaten Ken Clark in the runoff. He would surely have beaten Ken Clark in the runoff. History may have been completely different. It's one of those great what ifs, James, but I'll tell you, one of the themes of that chapter, as you know, is Portillo's heart wasn't really in it. It's one of the great ironies of the Prime Ministers we never had, that even though many of them were burdened by a perception of ambition, definitely Portillo, who generated mistrust. um, In most cases... They only stand for about one leadership in one leadership contest. And obviously, to get the leadership, you've got to win a leadership contest. And Portillo stood in 2001, but he had lost his seat in 1997. He didn't quite know who he was as a public figure. And as I think I put in the book, he was almost relieved when he lost and went out to the opera, declared he was leaving British politics and actually left the Tory party Uh but remain like you, James, a Brexit supporter. Uh, Paul Cooper, uh, remember when you were a child with a Meccano set? I never had one, Paul. And an urge to strip down your bike and put it back together, all the parts laid out on the lawn, no way. I wouldn't do that. I, I couldn't construct a bike. In fact, I dread now. I've, I was thinking of ordering a bike online, and, but I think it might arrive in parts, and I wouldn't know. I, I'd never get it together. Never. I'd, I'd just ride a saddle without the rest of the bike constructed. Um, uh, anyway, that's how I feel about Brexit and the current direction of the UK government. There's no gust of wind, just loss of interest in the future of the country as they gear up to campaign for the next election. And all the bar- bike parts lie ignored and unloved. Um, I don't know. Uh, he, he says the mood will be, can't be bothered. Uh, I don't, again, Paul, that is up to the Labour Party. Um, there will be energy in Scotland there. You've got the SNP, uh, Labour trying to re- revive itself, the Tories, you know, the Liberals. And, but basically it's up to Labour to generate a sense of it all matters and you can't be bothered. Uh, so keep on in there. You can't be bothered. I know that's a Catherine take thing, isn't it? Well, let's see. Um, Alan Evans, uh, I have two questions for your podcast, both concerning the BBC. What power does the role of director of news and current affairs have? Um, and will Jess Bramard, who's just been appointed, she's actually that's not the post she's been appointed to, Alan, have the same ability to wield power as previous occupants of the role? There's a hugely complex issue. Uh, too complex hierarchy in BBC News uh, with ill-defined links to the output. So there is an editor of News and Current Affairs and he or she can partly define that role as to how he or she would like it to be. Tony Hall, uh, quite a long distance between him and the output. I think that's the same with the current occupant Fran Unsworth, but Jess Braymar is doing a different uh, role, and um, I think she's responsible for the news channel. Uh, and she will, she's she she will be wholly impartial, as they all are. And we'll, we'll you know, there's a complete myth that a single individual can come in and sort of propel it in a kind of leftist leftist direction. That's not why they all roll up. But there's a separate issue of how many levers people like have well, her. Uh, to have on the output because there are so many of these uh, managers with ill-defined roles um, and their connection with the output is sometimes quite hard to see. See the connections. Um, oh, what was your other question? It's already been mooted in the Telegraph that Nadine uh, Nadine Doris is planning a crackdown on BBC programs uh, could the Tories be overplaying their hand in the next stage of the culture war was it they have to go carefully with the BBC because a lot of the BBC output is popular with their supporters including some of those who get involved in the culture war so you know as uh, Damien Green said when they were talking about privatizing Radio 2 do we want to be the party that abolishes the archers so they have to be careful about that Uh, Margaret Coulthorpe, she's still very concerned, rightly, about what's going on in Afghanistan. And she thinks, I suspect, uh, uh, the West will now be reluctant to intervene in troubled regions, particularly after the Afghanistan experience, along with the cost in lives and equipment costing billions uh, and making the industrial-military complexes a fortune. Uh, that might have to be looked at in light of all that's been left behind to rot as it's no use to the men on donkeys it's well it is interesting you know who've beaten the greatest military might on this planet it still needs to be fully explored how it was that the taliban regained control quite so speedily as you say against the greatest military might possible um but yeah, you're you're right about broader interventions. There need to be. I mean, you know, I mean, most of them haven't worked. But the problem is that even though clearly it didn't work in Afghanistan, given the speed at which the Taliban could recapture the whole country after years and years of um, uh, intervention from America, Britain, and others, um, but the. You know, some people did benefit, and have you heard that women or girls now aren't going to be allowed education? Oh, you know, it's all going to be grim. But as I think I said on the podcast when this blew up, the problem with intervening is, you know, like now, say if you're a social democrat or left in Britain, on the left in Britain. And, I don't know, we had an invasion from sympathetic onlookers, horrified by this government. And they imposed a kind of social democratic regime, but it was corrupt and patchy and fragile. Would we all be celebrating? You know, I I just don't know the the best way through this. Now, Helen Gordon, who came to uh, King's Place, I thought she was going to give me some of her bread. Helen sometimes sends in bread recipes. Her view on that Rishi Sunak vote is he's a mostly untested politician, been around for five minutes and won't cut it with the Tory party membership if or when Johnson goes. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, People who are very quickly overhyped rarely seize the crown. One of the themes of the book, my book, Prime Ministers, we never had. Um, uh, Oh, Helen goes on. In terms of the Labour Party, she wonders uh, whether Peter Kyle, there's an interesting thought, that's the sort of Lee Cowley equivalent, because Peter Kyle, who I know, but he never gets mentioned as a future leader, uh, very personable, one back, a marginal seat, articulate, or Yvette Cooper, who has the stature and experience to win the leadership in an election. Well, uh, we'll come on to Labour, Helen, if that's okay, after the Labour conference. Uh, in Brighton, uh, part of Peter Kyle's constituency, I guess, or near it. Um, uh, uh, Dario Linares is also wondering about uh, Keir Starmer. Uh, You have a potential answer that Keir Starmer could give in response to the what would you do question. And uh, in terms of this was the national insurance rise, and I agree, reiterating there's no actual plan and saying that, that this is something we will have to address in detail, where we understand where that plan goes, if there is one, by the election, and where the economy is in the next few years. My question to you is, do you think that Keir has the political dexterity to be able not to answer questions which will be politically impossible to answer, e.g. in that realm of tax rises, yet give a specific vision of the country under a Labour government? That is the key, Dario, the art of opposition at this stage, years away from an election especially a Labour opposition, where the media slaughters you if you hint at a tax rise and so on, of great specific detail, is to create momentum and dynamism uh, so you appear to embody the future uh, without becoming trapped in tax commitments at this point, which could destroy you Uh, later on Uh, you know now the problem is they were right not to give a whole detailed answer to the national insurance rise now absolutely right and yet they appeared so defensive in not doing so and it's that defensiveness which is the problem the art as i say is to always create a sense of purpose and momentum in interviews if you're leader of the opposition shadow chancellor so we'll see we'll see in the next um couple of weeks how that goes and we'll all analyze it together brad dodd from oxford steve uh i wish you well uh thank you very much um to even suggest that boris johnson is moving to the slightly to the left is wrong i think i was arguing that after that national insurance uh rise i'll just mention two policies that prove my point Sunak is stopping the 20 pound a week addition to uh, universal credit um, and and yeah, the second policy decision concerns payment of care expenses. The maximum that the wealthy will have to pay is eighty six thousand. But does this cover hotel expenses, food, clean uh, bedclothes, etc.? I don't think so. You see, Brad, I think you're right, but that makes this tax rise a hypothecated tax rise. An ambiguous moment and the ambiguity could work to the Tories favor again it depends so much on Labour and its leadership to expose the gaps and flaws in what has happened but nonetheless there has still been uniquely and uh, uh, for a Tory government a tax rise earmarked for health and social care and as we've discussed it's all going to health and there is no social care plan. But it's so much down to the opposition, and it's very difficult with uh, supportive newspapers, which have a big influence on the BBC, but that is the challenge, and otherwise they could, well, uh, get away with it. Uh, Noah Keat. I'm writing this week to ask about the age-old topic of what role opinion polls play in Politics. This is specifically in relation to some polls showing a drop in conservative support following the votes on national insurance and the pensions triple lock, which very much contrasts to their vaccine polling bounce. What attention should broadcasters and political commentators give, if anything, to this polling? It become, honestly, uh, Noah. It dominates everything. Opinion polls. So the vaccine bounce was the reason for Johnson's current omnipotence, the opinion poll lead, the perception that he remains a winner, almost to the bewilderment of some MPs. As Fraser Nelson once said to me, the editor of The Spectator, ministers are asking, what are, what are we doing right? They, they can't quite believe it, but it's there and it gives Johnson his might and if that were to change uh, Johnson's might would be diminished hugely and Starmer would start to be seen in the media and therefore beyond as a potential prime minister Um, so it is it is overwhelming in its significance even if some of them prove to be wrong subsequently we just cannot uh, get away from them and, and, and the parties are obsessed with them. And MPs in marginal seats are. Uh, the, they are the key uh, factor in determining the, the political mood at any given time. Michael Fortas, or it might be Michael Forte? Michael Fort, I think uh very much enjoying your podcast which i download as soon as they're available thank you very much i usually listen to them as i wander around Marseille and listen to the last one whilst on the novette the little ferry between the old port and point rouge in the south of the city what a i hope the sun was coming down you got a sunset michael as you were listening on the boat god i kind of just so jealous uh I was wondering what you said about Rory Stewart. Now, normally I would prefer Rory Stewart as Prime Minister to Boris Johnson on any day, but I think he's been wrong on Afghanistan. It's obvious that he feels strongly about it but his rationale for staying is essentially the same as that of all the neocons all the usual suspects who supported the so-called war on terror in Afghanistan and Iraq and have been flooding with their criticism pl- flooding the media with their criticism of Biden yeah, well, that, that's interesting. He says, do you think there's been a lot of media groupthink around the withdrawal of Afghanistan, qualifying it or stating it as a disaster um, when over 120,000 people were evacuated in a couple of weeks? Yeah, no, that's a very uh, good point, uh, Michael, that... Uh, the, the, the suddenness of the evacuation and the horror of the images that appeared on the screens and some of the things that have happened subsequently have I think uh, meant that those who have said this is all a disaster uh, have been given a kind of heroic uh, context when they have spoken in interviews and uh, where they haven't been challenged quite as much is that question that old starmer gets all the time so what would you have done you know i mean tony blair says to call it the never ending war is imbecilic but how does he envisage an ending so yeah a fair point michael uh enjoy the time in Marseille and those yeah scenic boat journeys um laundry joe uh he he listens doing the laundry uh quick question about opposition parties one of Labour's problems uh doesn't appear to uh, doesn't appear to be that its instincts aren't in the right place but is just seen as incompetent what can labor do from opposition to increase its perceived competence i'll tell you the answer to that laundry joe be competent as an opposition. Uh, Now, being competent is subjective. But for example, if that Labour conference is dominated by splits and rows and all the rest of it, uh, voters won't say, oh, good old Kiev is a strong leader. Some commentators might. Um, But the voters won't. They'll just see a divided party. So you've got to pass a test of competence as an opposition. Really, the New Labour dividing line in 97 was between competence under New Labour and incompetence under the Conservatives. They didn't really dare fight an ideological battle. Uh, There is space now to fight more of an ideological battle because ideas have moved leftwards, certainly in language, as we've discussed here. But, but, but... If you don't appear competent, you won't even get onto the stage. So there you go. Now, do you remember I mentioned, get on with the laundry, Joe. Good question. Uh, Scott uh, from Edinburgh. Uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying your book on the prime ministers the UK never had. Thank you very much, Scott. And I told you I was going to mention Herbert Morrison. Well, Scott is uh, a, a now almost entirely forgotten Labour big beast, Herbert Morrison, the relative of Peter Mandelson's. Good biographies of him out there, actually. One by Bernard Donoghue, Harold Wilson's advisor. I think there's a reason why Morrison is interesting regarding the current Labour Party, as under Keir Starmer. Um, he was involved in two consecutive leadership contests in 1935, in which he lost to Attlee, and in 1955, in which he came a distant third behind Gateskill and Bevin. He had distinguished himself as a Home Secretary during World War II and was seen as a big beast of Attlee's cabinet, albeit one of many. He had also had responsibility for much of Labour's ambitious nationalisation programme, which was achieved with relative speed and efficiency. He was also the prime mover in the very successful Patriotic Jolly that was the 1951 Festival of Britain. Finally, when Attlee stood down, Morrison was interim leader. an opportunity that, as you point out, people tend to assume will translate into leadership proper, but rarely seems to, like Rab Butler for the Tories, which uh, he's a chapter in the book, the first chapter. Um, so yet you also point out that those who spend a long time hungry for leadership are often not regarded as leaders when their opportunity arises. So he thinks, this is Scott, uh, Morrison, uh, because he was a leading proponent of presenting Labour as a patriotic party, patriotic about being British, that is, uh, much of it was expressed in the Festival of Britain held in 1951. um, And it was associated almost wholly with Morrison. Interestingly, although it was a great success, it didn't translate into electoral success for Labour or success personally for Morrison. People enjoyed the festival but ultimately voted according to policy perceptions. I understand why Labour longs now to be recognised as a patriotic party but whether under Attlee or Starmer it seems hard to achieve and will frequently seem tokenistic. So in other words, that attempt to overt patriotism by Morrison didn't help Morrison or Labour in 1951 and if it's too clunky, it won't help Starmer. That's the essence of Scott's message via Herbert Morrison. You know, people say to me something like, oh, the past, yeah, a, politics, one damn thing after another. But that's good context. And it's very interesting. You've got to play this patriotism thing very subtly or else voters will uh, turn away as they apparently... I didn't realise, Scott, that was a factor in why Herbert Morrison was viewed with some uh, wariness. Um. Uh, next one from Adam. Sorry, I haven't got the uh, surname uh, Adam. Uh, my question relates uh, to one of your favourite political words: consequences. What are the medium to longer term consequences to Boris Johnson's decision for the Tories' uh, new electoral? Uh, coalition this is the national insurance one i could be overstating the threat because pensioners are their base and very much protected but i believe pensioners often care about what they leave behind to their families it seems to me his policy benefits those in the south of the country those with high value homes uh, rather than the north of england yeah but remember adam that um, this leveling up agenda uh, will have all kinds of policies aimed at the north of England. I bet a lot of that health money uh, that has been raised by the tax, remember, it's not going on social care anyway at first, uh, will go to symbolic developments in the north of England. Um, so we'll see. Um, uh, anyway, let's see. And again, it depends on how Labour responds uh to to this in a way that is purposeful coherent accessible etc anyway uh thank you very much uh claire mackie claire Mackay, i think it's mackie um very much enjoying catching up with you from a Majorcan beach bar what a cool place to be listening to the podcast Uh, I think uh, Claire will be back by now. Booked it on Thursday, flew here on Saturday. Agonized over the morality and sensibility of it. Yeah, but the desire for unbridled hedonism prevailed. Don't blame you. Go for it. Um, Anyway, uh, so... Uh, She asked a very interesting question. Do you think the personal circumstances of the prime minister and the current prime minister in particular has much influence on how marriage, divorce, multiple children or any version of non-traditionalism is seen by society or more to the point, uh, as we seem to be internally stuck with them, the outlook of the Conservative Party? That's a really interesting question. See, I thought that this would be a problem for Boris Johnson, given with every respect, we have a lot of Tory members who listen, but average age of the Conservative Party, about sort of 108. I thought there would be wariness of Boris Johnson and the fact that nobody knows precisely how many children he has and so on. And it hasn't been an issue um, you know, and he negotiated his uh, the details of his divorce with his previous wife as the pandemic was ha- heading for the UK. He was in checkers doing that. No uh, problem for him in terms of the way he is perceived within the party. I think again because they see him as this winner, but I do think that means uh, Claire in a way that I hadn't thought about before. It will change the way the conservative party conducts itself and as you say because england tends to vote conservatives into eternal governments will change the views of england you cannot now have prime ministers lecturing on family marriage etc which by the way i remember when tony blair became leader the first thing he had to he gave an interview he felt the need to be to appeal to that sort of daily mail relationship his social conservatism he said the family was the best way to bring up kids and etc well obviously boris johnson can't do that given he's got several families so i think it i think it does have wider implications um the, the tolerance of um, uh, the johnson situation within an elderly party membership good point hadn't thought about it Uh, Andrea, enjoy Mallorca you're back I think you're back but I hope you had a great time Andrea Valentino wonders um, your reflections on prime ministers we never had in particular Dennis Healy led me to think about the question of hinterland and how it affects leadership chances Um, yeah no it's a good point uh, that some of the prime ministers we never had had far more hinterland uh than those who made it. Um, Andrea points out that Thatcher and Blair uh didn't have many interests beyond politics. That you're quite right. Um, and on the whole, the hinterland is both an attractive qualification of leadership, but because they enjoy so many other things, they don't become leaders. Uh, I think, you know, that was an issue with Healy. He didn't cultivate MPs obsessively. He went back, wrote poetry, played his piano, took photos. Uh, He had such a range of interests. Um, So, yeah, I think those who become prime minister often don't have that range. makes them less well qualified, but they have the time to focus on it. Uh, thank you, Andrea. Uh, Eric Holdaway points out, oh yeah, one of our listeners said, um, a listener wrote in to state the US had invoked Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty after the attack on, of September 11, 2001. Uh, in fact, that didn't happen, apparently. Um, so there we go. Uh, thank you for correcting that. Uh, Eric also said, "I want to ask you about two significant differences between this situation and Suez. First is the surprise factor. Eisenhower's response to the Suez operation was a shock, whereas two uh, two U.S. administrations have made their intention to withdraw from Afghanistan clear for over a year and a half. Candidate Biden was quite clear on this yeah. Absolutely right, and it's so interesting. Suez, the assumption was Eden assumed America would back it um, and was completely thrown by Eisenhower not uh willing to support the venture. God, the UK has had so much notice about Afghanistan, not only Biden's personal view basically from the beginning. Uh, you know, after the invasion in the autumn of uh, uh, 2001. Uh, so, so, you know, specific detailed warnings, as you say, for at least a year and a half, and yet we still managed to be surprised. Um, so, yeah, Eric makes a series of other points, but I'll come back to those if that's okay on another occasion. We've got so much to get through. Stuart Wolvin about social care, I know you had previously said, oh, yeah, now this is a good reminder. Of course, the government is also introducing a range of health service reforms, which I've been interested in because on one level it ends the atomisation of uh, the NHS, which was a theme of, began with the Thatcher reforms, uh, continued with the Blair reforms, and then went crazy with the Cameron reforms. Uh, This is part of the theme of the white paper. But we've heard from the great uh, Bob Hudson on this podcast and elsewhere uh, uh, that it needs much greater scrutiny, this white paper. Um, And uh, Stuart Wolvin says, uh, they're splitting the service into 42 units based on the advice of an American consultancy. Uh, And it said it will make the U.S., and sorry, the NHS more like Medicare and be an entry point for US healthcare corporations. Uh, to be honest, Stuart, I mean, so much going on. Uh, thank you for alerting me to it. I'm going to read it in greater uh, detail. Um, but when they, you know, Jeremy Hunt and others, uh, Matt Hancock, when do you remember him? What's happened to Matt Hancock? You know, they were focusing in the broadest terms of ending that atomization, I thought, yeah, very interesting, counter to that terrible fracturing where it was impossible to know who was in control because there were so many blurred lines of responsibility, more than at the BBC, which we were talking about earlier. Um, but, yeah, I don't know if you listened to the podcast where I cited a brilliant paper by Bob Hudson, NHS specialist or health uh, healthcare specialist, um, and, uh, he's, he's kind of written books on it as well, um, but Stuart, a uh, good point, um, he sees the vision of this, the NHS, is as unfeasible as, uh, any of the others, so, um, yeah, I'm going to, we'll look more into it, uh, Stuart, uh, when the moment comes, or when there's time to, isn't there so much going on at the moment, uh, and finally, uh, Denise uh, Willier, your podcast is essential Monday evening listening as I go for my evening walk around shore and beach. I know it well. Uh, hop, skip, and jump from the Rope Tackle Centre. The great Rope Tackle Centre is where I do the live show uh, fairly regularly. Coming back in December, Denise, uh, and looking forward to it. Uh, I've been thinking about the government's Leveling Up agenda and how Gove has been given responsibility for almost all the key planks of the government's electoral agenda. Uh, he has a reputation as a reformer. D- does he deliver anything of substance? Um, yes, yeah, certainly as Education Secretary. He, you know, uh, well, he was working with Dominic Cummings then. Inevitably, they kind of pissed off vast numbers of people they needed to cooperate with and there was a sort of contradiction they introduced more self-governing schools but self-governing uh implies a degree of freedom but actually they were utterly prescriptive as to what teachers could teach Um, and in other fields he gets moved around so quickly he arrives with a great energetic hunger to bring about change and then he's moved on again um, so this is a massive test, this levelling up, which is so vague and imprecise that Johnson's speech on the issue has now become a template of how not to make a speech on a government agenda. Do you remember he gave a leveling up speed leveling up? So anyone anyway, got some good ideas and um and he's also got to deal with this housing thing where Johnson has pledged to build more houses to meet demand. Uh, and at the moment, they were planning to do it by loosening planning rules which have alienated so many Tory MPs, he's announced a pause on it. So how he squares these circles. Uh, but And finally, Denise mentions this other thing. Um, Andy Haldane, uh, who was on the Bank of England, uh, part of the Bank of England's uh, hierarchy, Uh, is going to lead a new levelling up task force. Uh, Yeah, not much focus has been put on that. But he, I think, is going to be worth watching on that front. He's given a lot of thought to these things and the scale of the um, investment and innovation required for it to take shape. So watch that uh, task force. Well, there we are. Now, I apologise if um, not all the questions were answered, but we've got through a load. Um, and God, we've been going for an hour. That's as long as a whole show at the Edinburgh Festival. But um, And I say, if I didn't read the question out that you sent, please email me and let me know. But there we are. That's it. Um, God, what will we be next week? will be, yeah, start of the Labour Party conference, And who knows what twists and turns there will be during the week. So keep your points coming in. Uh, They've been a brilliant range uh, today and from all around Europe and the world as well, some of the questions. From a bar in Mallorca to a boat in Marseille. It's it's like one of those beautifully romantic films, this podcast, you know, where millions are spent on getting the best shots to show a boat on Marseille or, you know i'm going crazy anyway look thank you all very much for listening don't forget to get those tickets for king's place it's going to be epic october the 11th just after the party conferences um so i hope to see you there or um oh yeah i must mention uh because it's going to be great um the witham art center in barnard castle november the 6th um wherever you are come along uh from the whole, you know, just make a weekend of it. Book a BB at Barnard Castle. We're going to have some great fun, uh, you know, right next to Specsavers. So it has a legendary feel to it. Anyway, uh, brilliant range of questions. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. And see you Lib Dems this week and then Labour and then the Tories. We're right in the heart of the political season. So let's make sense of it all. Thank you. Bye.